This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States. The attacks and the U.S. response to them have had profound consequences for American domestic and foreign policy, as well as for international relations and global security. JMU Civic and JMU X Labs have partnered to gather and share stories of James Madison University alumni who have served and continue to serve in the military. If you have a story to contribute for our 9-11 at 20 series, please email civic at jmu.edu. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ongwaley. I'm Logan Tickler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. And I'm Jacqueline Doburn, Communication Specialist at JMU Civic. In this episode, as part of our mini-series on September 11th at 20 years, we talk with Dr. Mark Ellers. He grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and attended James Madison University, earning his bachelor's and master's in history. He was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant in May 2005, and was assigned to the 1st Squadron, 4th Cavalry Regiment at Fort Riley, Kansas, after completing his branch-specific officer training. He served as a platoon leader and troop executive officer in this unit from October 2005 to 2008, and deployed as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom from February 2007 to April 2008. Upon completion of his Army service obligation in 2016, Dr. Ellers completed his PhD and took a history teaching position. On September 11, 2001, Al-Qaeda operatives hijacked four commercial airliners and crashed them into the World Trade Center in New York and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. A fourth plane crashed in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Close to 3,000 people died in the attacks. Although Afghanistan was the base for Al-Qaeda, none of the 19 hijackers were Afghan nationals. Mohammed Atta, an Egyptian, led the group, and 15 of the hijackers originated from Saudi Arabia. In response to the attacks, then-President George W. Bush vowed to win the war against terrorism. On September 18, 2001, President George W. Bush signed into law a joint resolution authorizing the use of force against those responsible for attacking the United States on September 11. Subsequently, the Bush administration utilized that joint resolution as a legal rationale for its decision to take sweeping measures to combat terrorism, from invading Afghanistan to wiretapping U.S. citizens without a court order to standing up the detention camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Some two decades after the U.S.-led forces toppled the Taliban regime in Afghanistan in what led to the United States' longest war, the Taliban insurgency persists. According to the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs at Brown University, at least 800,000 people have been killed by direct war violence in the U.S. post-9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, and Pakistan. Thousands of United States service members have died in combat, as have thousands of civilian contractors. Many have died later on from injuries and illnesses sustained in the war zones. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers and contractors have been wounded and are living with disabilities and war-related illnesses. Allied security forces have also suffered significant casualties, as have forces from the opposition. However, the vast majority of people killed in the fighting since 2001 
have been the more than 310,000 civilians. In addition, the U.S. post-9-11 wars have forcibly displaced at least 37 million people in and from Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, the Philippines, Libya, and Syria. This number exceeds the total displaced by every war since 1900, except for World War II. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you can start by sharing why you joined the military. And this question actually, the second part of this question actually comes from Nick Swain, who asks, did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? The, the reason I joined the military is, uh, is pretty straightforward. Um, it was to pay for college. I, I needed money to, to pay for college, and ROTC seemed like a, a, a good way to go since it was, you know, fill out one form and, and, the, uh, and, and not have to piecemeal a bunch of scholarships together. And, you know, when I, when I started filling out all these forms, it was in the you know, early part of 2001. Uh, and so, you know, that, that sort of segues into your next question. Um, no, I had no idea what I was getting into. I was, um, when I signed on, I signed on the dotted line uh, for a four-year scholarship in August of 2001. Uh, I, I like to tell my students now, and then uh, used to tell some of my soldiers. I I was one of the last persons to join the army before we knew uh, what was what was what was happening. I thought the, you know, the pinnacle of my career would be going out to the national training center and you know doing some exercises out in the desert on tanks and uh, and uh, and then uh, you know calling it good. Uh, but all that was in the in 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 the service of of uh, pain. Uh, paying for college because I, I needed uh, I needed the money. Yeah, so not not quite as romantic or uh, you know uh, there's no you know long hallowed tradition of military service in my uh, in my family or anything. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was it was mainly a financial decision uh, for me. So you mentioned that you signed the paperwork on in in August two thousand and one, and then of course a month later, September eleventh happened. Where were you on September 11th, 2001, and what do you remember about how that day changed you? The, I, I have yet another uh, uh, rather unremarkable story for that one. I, uh, I was in Carrier Library pretty much the entire day, uh, and, and I, I even remember the, uh, the, the paper I was working on. Uh, it was for a, a World History 101 class, and I was researching, doing some research in, in the stacks, and I remember... It was a TA, uh, Mr. Arnold, uh, had had seen me there, and had and I was working on the paper for for his class, and he had mentioned something. Um, you know, I think I was down in the research room. He had mentioned, "Hey, did you see some? Uh, you know, a plane had hit the, the the World Trade Center." At the time, it didn't register to me at, at all what a big deal that might be, um, and so I just went on my merry way uh, in in the stacks, spent hours uh, in in the stacks that day. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, much later in the day that I realized, wow, this is this is a big deal. Something big uh, really, really happened uh, here. And this um, very well might have, uh, you know, really important implications for uh, for for my uh, for my future. Um, yeah. So it, it wasn't until much later in the day that I realized anything uh, was truly amiss um, because that's, you know, I was in I was in the, in the library. Uh, doing, uh, doing, doing research, but uh, you know, over the next, I think it was over the next couple of days that uh, when we started hearing the the 
messages uh, from from uh, from uh, our political leaders that uh, you know, especially in the ROTC department, uh, we started uh, realizing, oh wow, this is you know this is you know something something big is is about to happen, and um, you know this is this is a big this is a really big deal. Can you share your experiences serving in the global war on terror, global overseas contingency operations, and ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan? How did those experiences impact you? Sure, uh, that's a that's a huge question, but I'll try I'll try to do the best I can. Um, so my most direct, I mean, I, you know, the 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 entire uh, orientation of the of the uh, of the military. You know, oriented toward the the global war on terror very very shortly after the the uh, attacks on on September 11th, and so everything I did in the military was in in some way sort of oriented on that. But my most direct uh, contact with the the global war on terrorism came uh, in 2000, uh, 2007 to two thousand eight. Uh, I was uh, deployed in in February of two thousand and seven. Uh, and then redeployed in uh, late April of 2008. Uh, so I get to miss two birthdays uh, in one deployment there. I was uh, uh, not not exactly excited about that. Um, but I was a, uh, a platoon leader, a scout platoon leader in uh, the Dora region of Baghdad. Um, and basically what that meant uh, is that I was responsible for, depending on what kind of attachments we had to the unit, I was responsible for about 23 uh, soldiers and six uh, Humvees, and our job primarily we we were part of the the, the very famous surge into into Baghdad. The idea was to put it, you know put as many soldiers into uh, into these hot spots as possible, and, and basically just blanket the ground because you know, the, there was just not we, the the military is being asked to do everything with virtually nothing, and so. Uh, President Bush made the decision. Okay, well, let's you know, let's just try to to smother uh, the insurgency uh, with uh, with with more soldiers on the ground, and uh, I was I was part of that. So what our job ended up being uh, when we got there, uh, we were responsible for a, a very small uh, segment of the uh, of uh, of the of the Dora uh, district in Baghdad, which is just south of the uh, Tigris River. Um, in, in uh, some of the neighborhoods just south there. And our, our job um, was to make the area safe. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was kind of, and, 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 and that had a lot of implications. You know, what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean for an area to be safe? Um, well, it, it, it depended on who was in that area. Uh, we had a primarily, uh, a, a district that was primarily occupied by Sunni. Uh, Muslims um, who were who felt very uh, sort of shunted aside by the uh, by the uh, majority Shia government in uh, in Baghdad, uh, and that was uh, that was very frustrating for them, especially since many of you know frankly many of them had held uh, positions of relative power in the Saddam regime. So how do you reconcile these new uh, you know the, the, these folks into this new into this new reality? of a of a uh, of a of a democratic uh, experiment um on the ground uh, what that looked like often is uh we would um we'd work hand in hand uh with the uh, iraqi national police which uh is sort of their version of sort of a, a combination of a 
FBI, militarized FBI. I have a diary uh, that I kept while I was in Iraq, and I, I was going through it recently, and I was surprised uh, to remember, you know, how many, you know, every, literally every day we were doing missions with the Iraqi National Police, whether it was, you know, sometimes that was, they were training missions, um, you know, training that, you know, medical training, uh, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, reactive contact drills, stuff like that, you know, basic soldier uh, soldiering skills, uh, you know, teaching them how to uh, how to operate effectively. Um, but I think, frankly, the more important stuff we were doing was leading them hand by hand, especially into our Sunni district, because these the national police, as largely political appointees, were primarily uh, Shia, uh, and so we had the you know near impossible job of trying to get uh, the Sunni residents of our district to interact productively with the Shia National Police and for the Shia National Police to interact productively with the uh, with the Sunni residents of our of our district. And neither one trusted each other uh, at, at all, um, you know, and, and both had reasons, uh, had legitimate reasons for not trusting uh, the other. And so that was, you know, that was one of the big things that we did was, was you know, trying to build this relationship uh, up between uh, between the residents of our neighborhoods and and the national police, acting as sort of mediators, um, you know, acting as a as a as a neutral party, trying to um, you know help them see the other as a as as a, as partners, um, and and that was I think extremely important. That was you know on a day to day basis. That's what those people uh, you know they, the for the for the residents of our of our district for the residents of our neighborhood that was the government those, those national police those were the government that those who were who they interacted with on a daily basis and you know their interactions with the with the national police was their experience with the government and so if they were going to support the government they were going to have to trust the national uh they were going to have to trust the national police and trust that the national police was working uh working in their best interest uh and that was a very 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 difficult uh uh, difficult job, and we tried to put the national police at the front of everything uh, we did. Um, you know, one of the one of the uh, the big things that had to that had to happen as as we were rebuilding, uh, or as the government, the Iraqi government was trying to rebuild infrastructure uh, in, uh, in 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 Baghdad, was uh, distributing um, you know the necessities of life like propane. I, I would uh, you know we we at least once a week we'd be going out. Uh, helping out with propane distribution. It was a function of the the local government to hand out propane because that's how people, uh, you know, that's how people uh, cook their food. Um, and we we made it. Uh, you made we we made sure that it was always the national police that were in charge of actually doing the handing out of the uh, of the propane. We tried very hard to stay sort of in the background, so uh, so the uh, so that they had. Uh, so that the, the national police and the and the and the uh, you know civilians in Baghdad could interact with each other, uh, and and build that and build that trust. Other times it looked like um, you know trying to figure out how to get the lights back on. Uh, you know the, you know it, it, it's the little things like okay how do I how do I trust a government if they can't even keep the power running um, because that was uh, you know that the power grid was run run by the government if they you know and, and if you're you know living in a in a in 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 a very hot place and you can't turn on your air conditioner and you can't get decent running water you know you don't have much you, you don't have much faith in your in your government at all um you know like the uh italian said of uh of mussolini during world war ii well at least at least mussolini kept the trains running on time well many of our residents had the same attitude towards saddam you know well at least we could get at least we could turn the air conditioner on when saddam was in power 
Uh, so it was a, it was a difficult bridge to make, uh, a difficult bridge to uh, to 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 build the, to to bridge that gap between the uh, the actual residents of our of our district and and the Iraqi uh, government. I think we made progress. I don't think we ever you know totally cemented uh, cemented that relationship. I wish I could tell you a happy story about how you know by the end uh, when we left it was. Everyone was uh, dancing in the streets and you know stringing daisy chains together. Uh, that's I, 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 unfortunately I can't. I think we made some progress, um, and uh, that took uh, some sacrifices on both sides. That, uh, uh, but uh, but you know it, it was a, it was a very very difficult thing to do. It's easy to to break something. It's much harder to put it back together when you're talking about a uh, an experiment in a in, a, in an area that doesn't have uh, you know, a deep, uh, a depth of, of democratic, uh, uh, you know, infrastructure, uh, to underlay it. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, that, you know, having to build that from scratch is very, very difficult. What do you want the public to appreciate about the United States' military response to the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narratives? I think one thing to keep in mind is we... Sometimes we forget that there are there are very very strict limits on on the ability of the United States to project power, and oftentimes we forget that. Um, yes, we can drop a laser guided bomb through a you know through a, a window uh, and and destroy a house, no problem. Okay, that you know that that's easy, right? But there, but uh, but it's much harder to actually uh, you know turn that into you know turn that tactical success into a strategic, you know, something that's strategically valuable to the United States. And so it's really hard, you know, to under, and I don't even, I don't think our political leaders understood that. I think sometimes, uh, I, I think certainly the public has a hard time understanding that. I mean, you know, especially started, you know, back, back in the early 2000s, we were the global superpower. Why, you know, we could, we could, you know, we could easily, we, we could, you know, put the, uh, you know, put the, put the army into, you know the Middle East and topple the regime in a couple of months. You know what can't we what can't we do? Um, well, there's a lot we can't do. Um, and so uh, you know, so so realizing that uh, you know realizing that there there are there are hard limits uh, and, and and painful limits to the ability of the United States to project that power uh, is I think a, a, an incredibly valuable lesson that I I, I hope that the public uh, the voting public. Uh, you know, recognizes when they're making uh, when they're making their their choices. Um, you know, it all sounds it, it sounds it sounds great to you know say oh well you know we're, we're going to set up democracy and you know support okay but you know what what does that actually look like uh, is that feasible it sounds great I love it I, you know democracy is great um, but if it's not feasible then you know it's it's just it's just a bunch of hot air. Um, I think the other thing that I, I would ask people, I, I would encourage people to keep in mind, and how is how much of this was really done on on the fly, uh, and how much of this is really ad hoc. Uh, it, it it looked, you know, the, the the army likes to plan for things. The army has lots of plans, uh, but I don't think if you would have asked somebody on you know September tenth, two thousand one. If you would have gone to the Pentagon and and asked them, hey, where you know where are we gonna where's the army gonna be next? Iraq might have showed up on that list, but Afghanistan certainly would not have. Uh, 
there's uh yeah and, and so the 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 ability of the military to pivot and to and to uh and, and to and to build this operation you know out of essentially nothing i i think is is quite remarkable um you know were there mistakes made absolutely um uh, and huge mistakes made frankly um but I mean, it, it's you know the military is run by human by human beings. There's going to be mistakes made. So so just understanding that there's no there's no magic button that the that the planners push in the Pentagon and everything sort of falls into place. You know, all those decisions are being made by by people, uh, and by and and by people that aren't really much older than 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 you guys are. Um, and uh, you know, so so that's an awful lot of responsibility. Uh, and um, you know, the the ability that the 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 you know the the fact that, that that there was any success at all uh, is is somewhat uh, I, I think is a testament to uh, how adaptable the the military uh, the military is. From your perspective, what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in response to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks for domestic and U.S. foreign policy? I think the biggest thing people have have learned, uh, I guess. Uh, and um, is that uh, again? There are limits to what the United States can do, um, and and uh, we learned that the hard way. Growing up in the 1990s, um, I, I tell my students this when when we're talking about the 90s. You know, it, it, we had just won the Cold War. Uh, you know, democracy was on the move. Uh, you know, people were talking about the end of history. Finally, even the Soviets had figured out that the uh, that democracy was the way to go, and you know, oh yay, no one, you know, there's, you know, the it's, uh, you know, every everyone's on the same page finally. Um, you know, it was a great, uh, it was a great decade to grow up in, and then, you know, we, and then, you know, September 11th happened, and that, that woke up a lot of people, and and it was a painful, uh, a painful process of realizing, uh, you know, what the United States can't do everything, um, and there there's limits to what we can do, uh, and you know, even uh, and it, it took a while to wear off that idea that oh well, well we're the United States, we can do anything, uh, and we can go anywhere and do anything we want. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, I, I think that that that's the biggest. Uh, that's a that's a huge change that I've noticed uh, over the over the generation between you know people like me who grew up in the '90s and people uh, who grew up in the you know like the students I teach now who grew up in the early uh, early 2000s or early mid 2000s well now they're getting even younger um, the uh, but uh, uh, who don't even remember September 11th they've grown up in this uh, in this world in which you know there's uh, you know the United States uh, very painfully sees that there are limits to its foreign policy uh, economic uncertainty uh, you know that that's a you know that's a that's a huge change uh, that uh, that uh, that we that we underwent as uh, as a nation over the the two decades of the uh, global war on uh, on terrorism, and I think it's it's been a it's been a it's been a painful transition um, for uh, for people uh, for people to make. Mark, as a as an historian yourself, I wonder how you think future historians will evaluate U.S. policy and engagement in Iraq and Afghanistan? I was super excited when I saw this question on there because uh, the, uh, I, I, I love this question. I, I think, I think future historians will see this, uh, if they're putting in, in, in the long context of American foreign policy, 
what they will see is this a, is a is a part of a long-standing United States tradition of uh, acting in one of two ways: either acting as a uh, as sort of the the uh, the chosen ones, the to to spread freedom and democracy, uh, and uh, and and this uh, you know damn the consequences, um, and, and you know the the you know so the manifest destiny idea of oh well it's our it's our mission to spread uh to spread democracy and 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 republican idealism across not only the the continent but also uh, also the world and to uh and to uh uh you know to to uh, to be an active uh active player in uh in in promoting uh in promoting uh, uh democratic values uh, you know that that goes all the way back to the to the founding of the republic. Uh, you know that's uh, you know that's a very long. I, mean, I I see a lot of parallels here. Um, the other sort of uh, thread that you can see in American foreign policy is uh, Americans are very quick to define things as threats to their uh, to their uh, freedom, uh, and then to sometimes uh, actually quite often overreact. Um, and the you know this this is a this is something that goes way back into American uh, foreign policy uh, as well. Um, you know so the, uh, and I think we see this uh, we see this as well. Uh, you know it, so I, I in in the global war on terrorism. Um, you know we saw this uh, immediately in all the uh, in, in all the, the the speeches that were made uh, in the in the months following. Uh, the uh, September 11th attacks. Uh, George Bush I said, I think fa- uh, fairly memorably, you know, they hate us because they hate freedom. Uh, that was, uh, uh, you know, that that's a very that has a very long history in American uh, in American policy. Well, it, you know, if you don't like us, obviously it's because you don't like freedom, and and so and, and you and, and if you don't like freedom, you are an enemy to the uh, to the United States. Um, and and so I think. I think future historians will certainly fit the global war on terrorism into uh, those those longstanding threads of uh, of American foreign policy. I see a lot more continuity in uh, in the global war on terrorism than 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 you know great change in American foreign policy. Uh, so just to to uh, again, the, you know, the future historians are going to see this as a continuation of those th- two threads. The idea. Uh, you know th- this American idealism uh, to to spread uh, democracy, liberty, whatever we want to call it, uh, you know uh, uh, across the world. In June, President Joe Biden announced U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan by September 11th, 2021. As we engage in this conversation in July 2021, Taliban fighters are taking or retaking districts in Afghanistan. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? Um, I think the, I think what, one, one of my concerns, especially uh, for Iraq, is the, the sort of the fate of our the, the, the people who did the, 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 the local nationals who worked with us in, uh, in, in this, uh, in this endeavor. Um, I'm still in contact with my, uh, interpreter in, um, uh, that we, uh, that we used in, in Iraq. 
um, he he was great. He was uh, I, I I think the um, they were supposed to be sixteen years old. I think maybe eighteen. I can't remember. But this kid couldn't have been more than fourteen. But uh, but he I mean we loved him uh, and, and uh, we loved him because he you know he was very good at American idioms and so I could talk to him just like I, I'm you know I'm talking to you and he would be able to translate that into Iraqi Arabic no no problem um, and you know he he quite literally put his life on the line and and the lives of and the life and the life of lives of his family members on the line to help us out and to 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 help us to uh, accomplish what we wanted to do uh, in Iraq um, and uh, you know I, I haven't I, I have not been to Afghanistan but uh, you know that's certainly a concern uh, a concern there as well as once you with you know the you know the they they signed up partly because they knew that the United States would do whatever it could to protect them. Um, in fact, I, I remember in one mission in, that we did get in Iraq, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the kicking down doors missions that we got was to go rescue a, uh, an interpreter uh, who had been kidnapped, um, you know, by, by, uh, by, uh, member, uh, by members of Al-Qaeda. Um, and, and, you know, the, and, and so, you know, bad things happen to people who support the United States. And, you know, that, that, is, a, that is a concern uh, that, that I have. And I hope that we can resolve that and, and, and do what we can to protect the, the, um, the, uh, the, the lives and, 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 and the welfare of those, uh, the people who, who put it all out on the line for us. You know, they, frankly, they sacrificed much more than we did. Uh, you know, it was much more dangerous to be an interpreter in Iraq working for coalition forces than it was to be a, uh, a member of the United States Armed Forces. Uh, they, you know, it, it's, it was very dangerous business. They had to go out in disguise. Uh, you know, they all had uh, their little code names. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I really hope that, that we, can, uh, we can repay them for, the, for what, they, what they did for us. Um, you know, foreign policy-wise, I, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, I think it's, um, you know, is it unfortunate that the that the uh, that the Taliban is is retaking control of many of these districts? Absolutely, it is. Um, I think if you ask me in thirty years, I think we'll have a better understanding of what it looks like. Uh, I think if you were to ask a Vietnam vet in, was it nineteen seventy-five? I think when Saigon fell. Um, you know, if you were to ask a Vietnam vet in 1975, uh, you know, you know, was this all was this all worth it? Uh, I, I think you would have gotten a, a very frustrated response uh, that, you know, we did. Every, we, we spent 10 years there. Uh, we spent American blood there and American treasure and the, the communists still won. I mean, today, uh, you know, is, is Vietnam uh, is is communist Vietnam a real threat to the United States? Not really. Uh, you know, and, and frankly, it's uh, it's become much more you know democratic and economically liberal in the last thirty you know, thirty years. Um, so you know, could something similar like that happen in Afghanistan? Maybe I don't know. Um, so I think I think we have to wait and see uh, on that. Uh, you know, in that aspect. Mark, we thank you for your time today and for joining us. 
Democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. We thank you for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? Um, I think the I think the the biggest thing is to um, to be wide widely read, uh, to challenge your assumptions. Um, read things outside your comfort zone um be willing to listen to the other side because there's always another side um you might reject that other side but at least listen to the other side uh and, and try to figure out where they're coming from um and then and then uh and then take part uh you know if that for that for many people that means uh, that means voting um so uh, take time out to take time out to vote. Not everybody. That's uh, that's a, a privilege. Not everybody has. Um, uh, and so uh, take take time take time to vote. Even on those off year elections, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, you know, and, and you know, if you want to get involved in other ways, uh, you know, you know, serve in uh, serve in your local government, serve in your state government, or even your national government. I mean, you know, there's there's nothing to prevent you uh, from uh, from doing that. But I, I think the the, the most important thing you can do is to is to 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 be engaged effectively. Uh, you know, we used to we used to tell people, oh, well, get engaged. OK, be engaged, but be effective about it. All right. And that means, um, you know, actually learning about what you're talking about. Uh, so, you know, take the time to read. Uh, yeah, it's complicated, but uh, and 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 take the time to to understand uh, before you go to the voting booth. Um, so, uh, so yeah, take, uh, you know, be, be well read, have opinions, uh, but have the, but have well-founded opinions, uh, that are based on, based on reality and not, uh, based on, you know, electioneering slogans. Um, and, uh, you know, put a lot of, uh, put, put thought into it. it it's not easy. I, I, you know, I, I would almost, uh, dispute the, the premise of the, uh, of the question. I'm not so sure it's just, it's a, it's an unequal burden. Um, you know, it's hard to be a voter. It's hard to vote intelligently. Uh, it's hard to make those decisions. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, political power is much easier when it's, uh, you know, when you're holding an M16 in your hand. Um, when all you have, when all you have is a ballot, it's a lot more difficult. Uh, and so I would encourage people to, to remember that, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, take the time, to to learn, uh, take the time to read, take the time to grow, take the time to challenge your assumptions, and be uh, an effective, engaged uh, citizen. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.